is Robert Craig. We have a special edition of Battleground Wisconsin that was taped last week on the virtual radio row of the Democratic National Convention about how progressive a Biden administration will be and whether this alliance between progressives like Bernie Sanders and Senator Biden really will uh, be a lasting alliance if Biden is elected. Since it was recorded last week, it was before the tragic racist events in Kenosha. We have links to our statements in the podcast page, which you can see. Obviously, our hearts go out to Jacob Blake, his entire family, and to everyone in Kenosha, and frankly, every person of color and African-American who has had to experience yet another racist shooting by police, by official authority, of an unarmed African-American man his time with his back to them and in front of his family. We'll have a special episode of the podcast next week digging in. We'll obviously know more then because the events are unfolding. But in the meantime, our counter-programming to the Republican National Convention is a real discussion of whether we have a new Democratic Party or not, and whether it's going to move in a substantially progressive direction. Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We have a special edition this week uh, in commemoration of the Republican National Convention, which I'm sure is a proto-fascist odyssey. We have special interviews from the Democratic National Convention last week concerning the big question on the minds of progressives. Is the apparent alliance between progressives and moderates, which Bernie Sanders and, uh, and Joe Biden have effectuated, is it real and will it lead to an actual change in government where we can actually have a Democratic administration do bold reform? And we have four interviews, two from the moderate wing of the party, two from the progressive wing of the party. We start with Mayor Tom Barrett from Milwaukee, who has a vast amount of experience in the Democratic Party and is in the moderate wing. We then have Jason Ray, who is the secretary of the Democratic National Committee, a Wisconsinite, lives here in Milwaukee. And then from the progressive wing, we have John Nichols, who needs no introduction to our audience. And then we have one of the best strategists and organizers on the left, George Gale, the executive director of People's Action, our national network. We are thrilled to have as a special guest the mayor of Milwaukee, Tom Barrett. So, uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm honored to join you. And we're honored to have you as the host of this whole convention, though I know you uh, had preferred it, and as we all did, to be virtual so that the whole world could see how beautiful Milwaukee is in the summer. But we are rolling with the punches in this pandemic like everyone else has to. Well, the one thing I'll say is I, when we were making the pitch, I, I told them over and over and over again, I said, look, Milwaukee in the summertime, um, whether it's July or August, it's like heaven on earth. Um, people would love it. And I, I look out my window right now and it looks like heaven on earth. We were right in, in our presentation of the weather. I couldn't agree with you more. But let me ask you some substantive questions. Sure. And uh, one is just... Look, you have long experience in Democratic politics in the state legislature, member of Congress, then the uh, longtime mayor of Milwaukee, been around a lot of conventions 
And it seems to us, anyway, that there's this unprecedented unity uh, between the progressive wing and the moderate wing that's grown up over the last decade or so of the party. That was a real split in 2016. And it looked in the 2020 primaries like there was, again, with a progressive lane or a moderate lane for the nomination. And Joe Biden has reached out in an incredible way, not just in terms of politicking and friendliness, but in terms of actually moving on platform and negotiating with Bernie Sanders through a task force process, a real kind of joint effort on the big issues like health care and climate and the economy. And so I want to get your sense of whether that you think that's true, whether there is really a hard-won unity between the parties. You're really seeing it in the first couple of days of the convention. And what you, if you agree, what you think the implications are moving forward in a Biden administration? Well, to answer your question directly, yes, I think that there there certainly has been a joining of the forces in the different wings of the party. Um, and, and there's really more than two wings, but I think the progressive wing and what I would say the establishment wing um, are more closely aligned than I have seen in a long time. And, and I give a lot of the credit for that to Bernie Sanders personally and to Joe Biden personally. And I think the fact that they have a history and a mutual respect. And I thought one of the things that, that Bernie Sanders said in his excellent presentation two nights ago is he acknowledged um, just very in a very Bernie style, just said, we don't agree on everything. And, and he used healthcare as the example uh, that they don't agree on their approaches, but that he felt confident that they had the same end result in mind. And, and I think that spoke volumes to the, the mutual respect that they had for each other. And, and probably more importantly for both the progressive movement and for the establishment part of the party um, and understanding that we cannot, we cannot afford to beat each other's throats at this time because Donald Trump still has a significant following and, and, and a very uncanny ability to divide people. And we can't be fooled again. It goes back to the, the song from the who we can't be fooled again. So I, I think that that, that, uh, and I'll call it maturity on both factions is, is really resulted in what I think is a very, very significant joining of the forces in the Democratic Party. Okay, uh, we agree on that. And I think there's been a lot of outreach, and you've seen it in the convention. I think Senator Sanders' speech was great that way, that the, the, the existential threat of Trump uh, is the most important thing now. We will have discussions about policy later, though we've come together more than ever before as far as the I mean, he said repeatedly that this will be the most uh, progressive presidency since FDR if, if, if Biden follows through on what's in the Democratic platform this time and in the joint task force reports that inform that platform. Uh, I'm wondering, now I don't want to jinx it, Wisconsin's critical, there's a lot of voter suppression going on, uh, but assuming we can win and we can win the Senate, uh, so, in other words, we have a governing Democratic majority of government moving into January of 2021. It does seem to me there are challenges in that, obviously, President Biden is going to bring people he's worked with over the years who he has trust in into his administration. But a lot of those folks are more in the establishment wing, other than Ted Kaufman, his transition, transition director. It seems to me there are real challenges in actually doing the structural reforms we need unless he also identifies 
some strong progressives that he is comfortable with, not that someone else chose for him to be in a lot of key positions in the administration. If that doesn't happen, it's going to be hard for him to fulfill the promise of, of what, the promises they're making, even if he's making them in earnest. What, what would you do you think of that, you know, if you were projecting forward as a chief executive selecting their team? Well, it's, it's interesting because obviously the presidency is, is um, uh, so much larger than a local government. But I think you can see one of the strengths of, of Vice President Biden, some might even say some of the weaknesses, but I think it's a strength, is that he does wear his heart on his sleeve. And what I mean by that is he's really transparent that that he wants to be working with people that he trusts. And that doesn't always necessarily mean that you agree with him all the time. But in politics, I think that that trust element is incredibly important. And and that if it's important at the local level and at, at the national level um, to have people with different outlooks and different backgrounds, um, because you don't want it just to be a, a, a reverberation of what you're saying. You want to have people who disagree so that you can sort of figure out what the best thing to do is. So I think that Vice President Biden has been around long enough and has been successful enough that he knows he needs voices. He can't. He cannot have his presidency be an echo chamber of anything. If it's an echo chamber, it's a failure. You have to have that internal, I don't want to call it strife, but you have to have that creative tension there. And that means, I think, for certainty, having a significant number of progressives that are going to go in there and go toe-to-toe with some of the establishment people. And I think I think that's actually healthy to do that because, because outside of those rooms, you're still going to have the Trump forces that hate them both. You hate them both. And you got to remember, you got to remember what the challenge is. I couldn't agree with you more. And it really sounds like you know, uh, coming from someone who understands how to build administration on a smaller scale, but still a significant scale. Mm-hmm. And it does remind me of, of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, where it was very diverse. He had conservatives, moderates, progressives of both parties. They got along. He had trust in them, but there was that kind of vitality of a difference of opinion and discussion. Mm-hmm. It just seems to me that to actually do the the kind of things that's in this platform, like dealing with uh, racial inequality at a structural level, dealing with the climate crisis, dealing with the pandemic, is going to have a ton of opposition from the American right of this country, modern conservatives, and the huge forces behind them. And this is going to be hard. They are going to generate all sorts of attacks on it and make it very difficult. And we're going to need people behind this administration, including the whole progressive base. So if he doesn't have that diverse team, it doesn't seem like he can get the kind of public support he needs to withstand the, uh, the opposition attacks on what on trying to do anything like what he's proposing. Do you, do you agree with that, too? I, I do agree with that. Again, I think, I think just the fact that Joe Biden is the nominee tells you this is and this is I say this is a compliment. He's a street smart politician. He he could see what's happening in the Democratic Party. And you could see it in the presidential primary that you had more progressive candidates than you've seen in years, more from different parts of the party, more factions. Um, and I think there were a lot of people who were writing him off very early on, especially after Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, and it wasn't until he got to South Carolina that he was able to get his legs underneath him. And, and I think as a result of that, um, his ability to reach out to others uh, tells you that he can, he can sense when things are changing and, and the importance of being flexible enough and nimble enough 
um, to, to change along with that. And I think that's a, a very good sign of a, a strong leader to be able to read your audience and know, okay, this is where I need to go. Yeah, I agree. And he, we don't know FDR had those kind of qualities. We don't know yet and, uh, whether Joe Biden's at that level. We certainly hope he's in that direction or even at that mm -hmm. level, given our challenges. But that's a relational politician. Uh, Roosevelt was not, not, a, not a doctrinaire progressive. He was a problem solver who related to people and cared about what was happening to the American people in the Depression and how to build a new system. He kind of did what he thought was necessary, not what wasn't based on a grand vision. And it seems like that's Joe Biden's approach in his whole career as well. Uh, and it's understandable why progressives have doubts, because that kind of approach has not brought him to strong progressive positions all the time in his long Senate mm -hmm. career. But this is a different context, right, than he's ever faced before. In a historic context, yeah. um, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson, again, coming out mm -hmm. of Texas, coming out of conservative yeah. groups, became one of the leading progressives in terms of Medicare and in, in terms of civil rights. He was able to do that. And I think sometimes, I don't want to say it's Nixon going to China, sometimes having that moderate in there, they, they do want to. They do want to be strong with their base, and if their base is progressive, I think that that's going to allow them to take those steps because then they'll know that they're going to have that the progressives will have his back. I think LBJ is a great analogy, and in fact, LBJ was the president most influenced by FDR. So therefore, mm -hmm. there, there's a cross pollinization there. He he, he was a, that was his mentor really politically. Let me ask you, as far as Milwaukee, this is a great city as we talked about, but. The, the economy that was brought here in the late 70s to now has been terrible for Milwaukee and has led to really some of the worst racial inequalities in the country. Uh, and that's been a broad system, systemic thing. It's not, it, it's not fair to just to, to blame the leadership of the city of Milwaukee uh, uh, for these structural changes. But I would say that if we really are going to make these climate changes, for example, and you, you signed, you're part of the climate city uh, county climate task force that we're part of at Citizen Action are so thrilled about, uh, it seems like he might fund the kind of plan that that task force is working on. And we could actually start creating a new economy in Milwaukee that's better for Milwaukee, like the economy of, say, the, the, the progressive era all the way to the late 1970s was, as far as this being a haven for good jobs and the last great stop on the Great Migration. I want to get your thoughts whether you're excited about the climate and economic plans, the public jobs, the huge intervention into public works, being a sure. way to rebuild Milwaukee better, not to, which is a, a specific question beyond building back America better, you know, uh, uh, Biden's uh, campaign theme. Well, obviously, I would be ecstatic if he decided to make that investment. And I think that we are very well positioned, um, even with our challenges, to be one of those cities that would benefit from this. We, we have very good bones here. And what I mean by that is our, our access to the lake, the rivers, all of that is very powerful in terms of having a green economy, in my, in my estimation. Um, and I think having a a premium placed on that and having attention pay, placed on that would put us in a much stronger position. There's no doubt. And again, I agree with you, the decimation that we saw starting in the late 1970s and the loss of all those industrial jobs, um, that has had a horribly challenging impact on, on the city of Milwaukee, particularly for people of color. And so we need to have an injection of um, vitality 
and we don't have the resources here. We, you know, we're battling the state all the time um, just to, to fund the basics of government. And for us to move forward, I think it would be great to have that partnership with the federal government. And I think that he would be interested in that. I certainly hope so. I'm glad to hear that. Music to my ears, because we'll need your leadership to land the money and, and use it well. And just so you know, because you're very busy with the convention, the uh, Milwaukee uh, City County Climate Task Force that you helped sign into law with the county executive, uh, the Economic Equity Work Group, which is uh, chaired by Raphael Smith, our climate and economic equity director here, is starting to work on what the Biden plans and his agenda in the, in, the, in the joint task force report with Sanders and in the platform and in his own plans, um, how, how we could have plans to use that, those kind of resources and those changes in Milwaukee so that we're shovel ready or close to it in next January when this starts to happen, when the big fight for federal money comes. So we're hoping, obviously, the whole city, the kind of council, yourself, uh, we'll have to weigh in and shape that as well, but you at least have a draft, hopefully, from the city-county climate and economic equity task force. Well, one of my favorite phrases in government is the phrase shovel ready, um, because at the local level, it's all about getting things done. And my experience, whether in particular with the federal government, is that they like they like shovel ready projects um, because they believe, and I share this belief as well, it means you're ready to go. Let's get going. Um, Let's not spend three or four years trying to figure it out. Let's get going. And so to the extent that we've got shovel-ready projects, again, that's music to my ears. We're, we're working on it. We have two members on the task force as well. So, uh, we, and we have a whole bunch of coalition partners involved, you know, labor is involved, uh, Pam Fent, the head of labor council. So we hope to have some good drafts for you by the time. But then we'll have to help uh, President Biden, hopefully President Biden, I'm trying not jinx it, to, to, to enact those, and then we'll be ready to act on them. So it's great. Uh, I'm glad your assessment aligns with mine because it gives me more confidence given your long experience in, in, in both being elected but in running things and, and doing government because I know you're about running things, and that's what uh, Joe Biden has stepped up for right now. Him and his running mate Kamala Harris will be a great partner on this. Yeah, yep. It's about getting things done. Let's get things done. So. So thank you for joining us. I know you're about to run back to the convention, so we're yep. glad you could fit us in. Right, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you for listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And we're doing interviews from the Democratic National Convention this week uh, that you're all hearing uh, on our program. And so we are very pleased to have our new uh, national television star, Jason Ray. He is well-known in Wisconsin circles and, and within party circles. He is also was elected the, the secretary of the entire National Democratic Party, the De Democratic National Committee. And he is the one on national TV who ran maybe the most popular, one of the most popular whole features. That was the state roll call, where you actually saw the states. And so, Jason... Thanks for joining us, and, and, and congratulations on a very successful uh, uh, state roll call, much more interesting than usual. Thanks, Robert. It's great to, to be here. It was, it was a totally reimagined roll call, but I think one that has changed uh, how conventions will operate going forward. 
I think so. I don't think they'll want to go back to the old ones with people standing in front of, you know, their their placards, their state placards on a on a floor, not being able to be seen or heard very well. Uh, it was way, and it was way much more interesting as far as the diversity of people that were doing it, actually. Well, and as someone who uh, I miss traveling, you know, in the midst of everything being stuck, you know, at home, it, it was great to get out and kind of do a road trip across America that way, and get to see different places again. Yeah, no, it was a little bit like that. It was like watching a travel program or something, but a little more interesting because you jump so much from state to state to state and want to see how each state would present itself and who would be the uh, the spokesperson. So I thought it was great. So congrats on that. And uh, so you have been a very long activist, not in not only generally, but within the Democratic Party. And so you know your way around the Democratic Party, both the state party, the national party. You know how it functions. There are a lot of folks, activists, who have theories or ideas on how it works. You actually know how it works from the inside. And so it seems to me that something distinct is happening. I was on, I don't have nearly the party background you do, other than being a you know member of my adult life, uh, but I was on the platform committee in 2016 for Bernie Sanders, and it really seemed like a cold war between the Sanders camp and both the Hillary camp and the DNC camp, which had really intervened on behalf of Hillary in that primary, and there were a lot of hard feelings. And it felt like the Bernie team was supposed to kind of, like a, a losing army, lay their guns home and return to their farms after platform committee. That was the feeling to it. This is very different. I mean, Joe Biden has has turned something people have been critical of him on, his coalition building, his bipartisanship, into bipartisanship within the party, where he and Senator Sanders, and Mayor Barrett gave Senator Sanders a lot of credit in an interview with him uh, on the, for this program, uh, came together, had a joint task force process, both moved, found a lot of common ground, and, the, and, the, and you can see it in the convention, uh, there's a real effort to re- outreach the progressive wing of the party, which has grown in strength in the last decade, especially the last uh, since uh, 2015 or so. And in addition, it, there's really been a team feeling both with Bernie and with uh, Joe, but also Elizabeth Warren uh, at the uh, convention in her excellent speech. So I wanted your thoughts on whether we're seeing something unique here, a new alliance that might last hopefully beyond this election. It's critical to be Trump. But it seems like it can go beyond that as far as governing. I hope so. I mean, I think we're really seeing the party come together and unite now uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. I think people understand how high the stakes are and what is out there. And, uh, you know, from I think you, you mentioned it, Robert, you know, from those joint task forces, we came together with policy recommendations that shaped a platform that is the most progressive party platform that we have had um, in modern times, basically. Um, and that's because we, we're working together and we know that uh, the stakes simply are too high for us to to allow infighting to continue to happen. And, um, you know, I think it, it goes to show how uh, important it is that we as a party build unity. And that's what this convention has been about from the start, is about how do we unite America. And that includes uniting within the Democratic Party, uh, people who might have been with Senator Sanders to make sure that they know that they have a, a, a home. Uh, that they are welcome, that their views are welcome, and and you see that, and I, I I'm hearing that from um, different people across the country that they're experiencing this week as they they listen to the speeches, as they hear the messaging, um, as they understand how we are moving um, collectively together 
um, to really help reshape uh, the party and hopefully uh, reshape this country when we win in November and get to enact some of this really progressive policies that we have uh, been talking about. You know, what one thing people don't know, and I'm, you know, a student of history, is the New Deal was not something like uh, the Bernie operation per se. It really was uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, really the iconic Democratic president, right, actually pr- provided and created a bipartisan group of advisors that were progressive, moderate, and conservative, and they moved forward together, and that was stronger. And so it wasn't just one wing of the party, and he had to navigate the fact that we had a segregationist southern wing and get them to do super progressive things like a giant jobs program and uh, labor law reform that created a right to a union, a whole lot of Social Security, you name it, and was able to do that. In other words, that division between the northern and southern party was serious than the prog- even the progressive moderate divide that concerns all of us and that we're involved in in different ways. You agreed did a great job of talking about the stakes, the democracy with Trump and everything behind Trump. But so it under, if I, it's by enough margin, so we also take the Senate, because it'll be hard to govern if McConnell is majority leader, who uh, governing. And there's a huge, unlike the 1930s, revolving door of interest in people that have a lot of influence that are not necessarily, as Bernie Sanders says, uh, he'll be the most progressive president since FDR if he enacts um, at their word, Ted Kaufman in particular, that he's promising this because he thinks how Washington works, keeping this alliance going because progressives don't have the kind of influence in Washington. That they- I think so. I think at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons that, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are really how to govern, they understand how to build coalitions, they understand how to get things through the House and the Senate swamp from the beginning. He hasn't done that, and he's only continued to allow those outside influences to a moneyed interest uh, front and center. Um, Joe Biden hasn't done that. He understands how to make people's lives better, and uh, I'm not concerned about that. I think we understand as a party uh, what's at stake, uh, that he understands what he needs to do, and I think he's ready on day one to really advance this legislation and really uh, help build uh, our country back. I certainly hope you're right, Jason. I appreciate your optimism. Um, I think our party hasn't done real bold reforms since the 60s, and we've lost the muscle. And I think the whole political scene is different now and the alleged lobbying scene. And just the amount of money spent on lobbying and campaigns is much greater than the 60s, let alone the 30s. Uh, But it will depend on who he picks. Uh, You and I both are – I'm not a – commercial lobbyist. I'm a lobbyist for a nonprofit, right, or have been. I'm not a lobbyist right now, but I have been, and for labor. Uh, You and I know there are people who have lobbying backgrounds who want to do big progressive things, including them in administration is one thing, but there are others who really are business folks who are are not. And so that's, and and he's got to pick wisely. He should, he, he does have the knowledge to do it, but it's very important he have the right people and the, he knows better in some ways than we do which ones will be on board for this and which will try to undermine it. But let me, because we only have a couple minutes left, uh, you know, as a gay man, I know you have done a great deal in leadership within the party and externally for the LGBTQ plus movement. Uh, what's you now? Gay marriage was huge, but it's not everything that was needed. Yeah, I mean, Tim Burton is really looking at um, how we're going to continue to push forward. And I, and I am excited for this ticket because... You know, 
Joe Biden has talked about within the first 100 days really pushing to get uh, the Equality Act passed, uh, which is really ensuring federal protections for uh, LGBTQ people. Yes, we had a great Supreme Court decision that said you can't discriminate in employment based on uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, but that only goes to employment. It doesn't go to housing, public accommodations, other federal programs. So, you know, Joe Biden has pledged within the first 100 days to pass the Equality Act, something that uh, Speaker Pelosi has already gotten through the House. Um, so that that's one piece of it. But then it's really pushing in a, a sweeping plan to really advance equality that will protect uh, LGBTQ plus youth, protect LGBTQ plus individuals from violence, uh, and particularly work to end the, the epidemic of violence against the transgender community, uh, particularly transgender women of color. Uh, so I think there's a whole lot of opportunity here to really work to to put some bold things in place that really show that, LGBT, that, that LGBTQ rights are civil rights. Um, and especially after an administration where you have, uh, you know, Donald Trump and, and, and Mike Pence have really given hate against LGBTQ individuals, safe harbor, um, and have worked to roll back protections. I know Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to fight to make sure that we are advancing LGBTQ protections and we're really building, um, we're building a community where everyone, everyone can be, uh, who they are um, and, and not afraid of that. And I think you saw that in Kamala Harris's speech uh, as well when she talked about systemic racism. It goes beyond that. It continues that idea of how do we build an America where you are respected for who you are, uh, no matter who you are, no matter who you love, no matter what the color of your skin may be. Well, great job laying that out. I didn't give you enough time for it, but you did a great job meeting the time mark, Chase. And I know you're speaking of time mark, you're probably super busy around the convention, given your role. So we'll let you go and get back to your work. We're recording this uh, during the convention and waiting Biden's big speech on Thursday night. So you'll hear this next week, though. So you'll already know how it went. Pull off today. Thanks, Robert. Thank you for listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin special Democratic National Convention coverage. And we are fortunate to have one of the uh, best known uh, progressive analysts, pundits, whatever, uh, uh, writers in Wisconsin, known nationally, John Nichols, both the associate editor of the Capital Times here and the national affairs uh, correspondent for The Nation magazine. So, John, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to be with you. Great pleasure. So I think this is a very opportune time to have you because the progressive insurgency within the Democratic Party that really started in 2015 when Bernie Sanders became the, the, the sole contender against Hillary Clinton uh, has gotten to the point where the moderate Democrats led by Joe Biden, even though by strange happenstance, a weird set of circumstances, uh, won the nomination, feel the need to find common ground with progressives, it, at least in my opinion, I want your thought, in a way we haven't seen before, where there was major movement on policy through the joint task force process, and where Bernie Sanders has become one of the leading, if not the leading surrogate on, say, the Sunday morning shows for uh, Joe Biden. And so clearly, uh, Senator Sanders thinks this is real and not just that a marriage of convenience during an election, but a real opportunity but it's new. This there's been, hasn't been this kind of cross-party kind of negotiation really since the old Democratic Party with its distinct northern and southern wings, in my opinion, that were almost two separate parties within a party. 
And I want to get your thought on whether this is extraordinary. There's been a lot of ink spilt on it and, uh, and, and what your assessment of what is going on is and whether it squares with what seems to be uh, Senator Sanders' assessment that there really is something here to work with. Very good question. Uh, look, I'll begin with the basic premise that there's always a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is uh, not a united front. Uh, neither is the Republican Party. But the Democrats have always had uh, two clear wings and then great variations within those wings. And the two wings have always been a kind of more corporate uh, D.C. Uh, establishment tied wing, not necessarily the establishment, but establishment tied. And on the other side, uh, an insurgency that tends to be uh, far more committed to a principle of politics, less uh, respectful of where the money comes from, uh, more interested in you know, big, bold structural changes and, and pushing for them. In a sense, they both need each other because uh, to build out a winning campaign, you have to have some folks who know how to do a campaign. That's, there's, that's true enough. And, and a lot of insiders fit into that camp. But to, to make it work, to, to have the, the, the great mass of people that would, would actually prevail, yeah, you, you need the, the progressive base. And that's, that's where an awful lot of people are. So the party always wrestles with this. It's a great struggle. And there are times, there have been times in history where it's come together. Uh, I think a classic example was 1964. And you saw a rising civil rights wing in the party uh, that people who were really committed to addressing uh, racial injustice, uh, for fighting for voting rights, for fighting for civil rights. And you did have the Southern wing. There's no question they were still there. But uh, the establishment made a choice. They went with the, the civil rights wing. And that forced, at least in that 64 election, it really began a process going forward, uh, forced the, the Southern segregationists out. Uh, you know, Strom Thurmond, a, a Democrat up to that point, announced during in that period that he was going over to the Republican side. And, and that's where you went. The, other flip, the flip side of that would be 1968, where you had an anti-war insurgency, which was also in many ways tied to the uh, racial justice community because of the work of Dr. King and others uh, to link the issues of war and justice at home. Uh, and they were in many ways uh, marginalized by the, the Democratic leadership, the powerful folks. So that's the fight. It's always on. And the Democrats win uh, when there's a point of at least some unity. So everybody's always looking for it, right? They're always trying to find it. And I do think that there is something to it today. I think there are uh, there's evidence that uh, people are relatively united, but I would give a caution on this uh, because the unity is, as you see in the convention, based largely around Trump. And the fact of the matter is that that people really do see an existential threat. They're, they're frightened by Donald Trump. They want to see him defeated. They don't want to be blamed for failing to do the things that would defeat him. And, and so I do think there's an understanding of a need to work together. And you saw a lot of that in the convention, right? You saw Sanders talking about it. He's, he's come back to it again and again. The one final counsel I'll give on it is that all of these things are impacted by reality. And that's a funny thing about politics, right? Politics has the reality of trying to win an election, but then there's the reality beyond the election, the, the, the forces of the times in which you live. And the forces of the times in which we live and that 
are demanding great big structural changes, uh, a real response to the coronavirus pandemic, to mass unemployment, to a, a cry for racial justice that is now being heard at, at the level it should have been heard long ago, uh, a climate crisis, and you know the ongoing challenge of militarism. I mean, these things, these are this is big deal stuff. And so one of the reasons I think that a Bernie Sanders or an AOC or others think that they that there may be some possibilities here is because the issues themselves are so big that they have to uh, power the establishment, the elites, if you will, however you describe it, has to respond to the progressives because the progressives actually have the ideas that would solve the problems or at least begin to address the problems. Right. And it does seem like it, uh, you're right. There's always unity thought because you always have to have a big tent in the general election for a party yeah. that's always been diverse. But it, 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 first of all, in 2016, it didn't seem to even really happen in the election. As you know, uh, Mary Butari, your partner, and I were on the platform committee for Bernie, and it was like they expected us to be the army that laid down its uh, guns and went back to our farms. It was not. It was supposed to be a, an ordered surrender as opposed to any kind of merging of the two wings of the party. But I think you're right about the aspirations, and it seems like Sanders thinks this, of Biden, that he thinks he needs progressives both for this election and to withstand the Republican onslaught to try to do anything. Uh, in the uh, it, 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 once he wins, but is it possible that he's unlike the 1930s, where uh, really FDR, who was not a movement progressive, thought the times called for bold reforms, big structural reforms, but to solve the emergency, not because he had a social vision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they're understating the huge lobbying complex, all the money in politics, the huge interest to concentration in Washington. And a lot of the establishment figures around him will not really be allies once their oxes are gored. Do you have a concern about that? And we just have uh, in this segment just about four minutes left. But do you are you what do you think this leads us as far as governing? It seems like that's going to be very challenging and requires a lot of progressives who are really savvy that can be parts of the administration to be high up and in authority in order to make this possibly work. And you didn't see that in Obama at all. Well, you saw a few, you did see some people in Obama's administration who were progressive. It's just that they didn't have, they weren't at the center yeah. always of, of the action. And, and that's always true in any administration. There's a great fight. Um, do I have concerns about that? Yeah, I have a scorching, overwhelming, everyday, huge concern about that. Um, I think that Joe Biden came up uh, really through the, the centrist uh, kind of, you know, compromise-oriented wing of the party. And I think he is a man of Washington. And uh, despite the fact that he, he may have some very good instincts, uh, he is surrounded by a lot of people who are going to talk about the limits, the controls, the constraints. And you have already heard it. Uh, you've already heard Biden aid talking about how big the deficit they will in- inherit will be. Right. And boy, the second they say that, run screaming from the room, because that's the point at which you know that they are already preparing to do less than what they're promising. And this is why progressives, I think, have to be um, eyes wide open, consciously engaged with this campaign. They have to, to the extent that they choose to be, they have to recognize that there is another force that is gonna try very, very hard to say, yeah, you won the, you know, the election was won, but we can't do anything. We can't begin to do the big things that are necessary. And the message, I believe, from progressives in that circumstance is not 
only the moral message, which is you must do these things because it is indeed the right thing to do. You have to act for economic and social and racial justice to address the climate crisis, to address militarism. You have to do that. That's the right thing to do. But they also have a practical argument for it, which is if this administration comes to power and does not govern in a bold way, where it actually spends money and does big things and eases the burden and the pain of Americans uh, you know, in, in so many ways, if it doesn't do that, the Republicans will be back in 2022 and there will be someone as bad or worse as Donald Trump leading uh, you know, a, a reformed, if you will, Republican Party that'll probably be more right-wing even than what we see right now. And they will say the Democrats had two years and they couldn't do it. So uh, to my mind, the message from progressives should be uh, that it is not merely a good idea. It's not really the right thing to address economic and social and racial justice issues and all the other things we talk about. It is also the necessary thing to do. If you fail, if you fail to act in big ways, um, all of this will come back to haunt you in very short order. And we're about out of time for this segment. Uh, for you radio listeners, you can hear a continued conversation with John Nichols, but you have to, like the Sunday morning shows, go to our website, uh, citizenactionwi.org, go to the podcast section, and you'll be able to, if you want to hear further thoughts by John, you'll be able to hear them there. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig with our guest, John Nichols, and we're talking about the unique, in terms of its intensity, progressive modern alliance that has been put together by Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and where it leads. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about this. Uh, the publisher of The Nation, your, your colleague, uh, uh, Katrina Vandenhuvel, is both, it seems, optimistic and wary at the same time. She's written a series of, of uh, Washington Post columns about all of this. There's great concern. Robert Kuttner has raised it about the people around Biden and the personnel as policy question. Like, you'd have to have strong progressives who can work with Biden and this team who are in strong places, who are, you know, literally the head of the Council of Economic Advisors or the Treasury Secretary, et cetera, not just on the periphery, which we've tended to have in recent post-Watergate Democratic administrations. And, you know, E.J. Dionne wrote a book, Code Red, very well-timed in February, proposing this alliance between the left and the center, claiming that if you combine the attributes of both, we'd have permanent governing power, be a realignment. If you had the inside knack and practical ability of the moderates and the vision and the mobilizing capacity of progressives. Uh, but it seems to me there's agency on the part of Biden and his team and who he assembles as his team. Really, the only strong progressive in the center is Ted Kaufman, as far as I can tell, right? Because we know that and there's some doubt about him, but he was very progressive as, as a U.S. senator when he uh, took Biden's seat when he became vice president, worked closely with Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so he's going to need a lot more than that. Uh, but so there's that whole question. But then there's the question of whether we, the left, can evolve enough to deliver, because if we they're going to depend upon us to do the mass mobilization to the public movement that is going to balance the huge amount of money that's going to be put on by the rising plutocracy, because there's so much more money in politics and in lobbying now because of the income maldistribution during this whole period. And, they, and that's why there's a threat to democracy here, as uh, Jacob Hacker, 
and Paul Pearson have written in their in their latest book. Uh, and so do you think that I think the progressive movement also needs to get to the next stage from resistance to power where we're able to play an inside game and an outside game and actually back Biden up when we need to and know the difference between him not doing exactly what we want and doing something real that's towards structural reform that will make a real difference? And I wonder if you think that, because I don't think that this movement has to get to another stage, just like the moderates do, too. Biden does. Yeah, I think I think you put a lot on the table there. And and so um, let me do my best to, to take a few pieces of it. Um, and. The, the one thing is that the staffing of the, the next administration, if these people win, and I think we should be very careful about getting ahead of the curve, right? This is a, there's still a substantial amount of time between now and the election, and it's vital to, to kind of be focused on that challenge of getting power. So in a sense, um, the first question is, uh, how, do you, how do you keep that coalition working? And, and I think, frankly, that, that uh, the Democratic Party needs to Get a lot more serious about you know deep substantive progressive agenda items and talk about them so that there's a real sense that that defeating Trump means something more than just getting rid of Trump and and I do think there's a gap there even at the campaign level but once you get beyond that uh, and if indeed they win then uh, then I think there's going to be great battles on staffing and I think that progressives should put names up early and they should push they should you know they should. You know, use the power of social media, use the power of their congressional allies, use everything they've got to say, no, you can't staff this new administration with the same bunch of folks that, you know, were there in the in the 90s or, you know, at some point in the past. You need, you know, a, a new generation, younger people, but also people who have new ideas. And I think it's going to be a battle royale, to be honest. I think it's going to be a serious fight because I believe there are forces that are obsessed with deficits and debt and are going to want to not spend money. And that would be a disastrous approach. There are forces that still worry about so-called backlash. And if you, know, if you move you know, too well on immigration or on racial justice, that somehow there'll be a pushback. And I think they just have to be told, no, no, that's the politics of the past. There has to be, there has to be action on these issues. And in America, polling tells us America will respond well to that action. So there's a fight there, right? And once we understand that, then I, I think you hope that you get people that, that you can work with, that you can listen to. If there are people you can work with and listen to, then you get to the stage that, that you're talking about, Robert, which is this challenge of, you know, where do you make the call on what you encourage and what you challenge? And I think that the left always has to be prepared to challenge an administration they agree with because uh, that makes an impact. The person I always reference in all these discussions is A. Philip Randolph, the leaderhood of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the, the great champion of you know, civil rights in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and Randolph, would, you know, he, he basically operated on the view that uh, a Democratic president is maybe somebody you could talk to, but not necessarily somebody you had expectations of. You, you knew you were going to have to pressure him. And so it's interesting to note that Randolph proposed a march on Washington in 1941, and Franklin Roosevelt, not wanting that, moved on integration of defense industries. Randolph proposed a march on Washington later in the 40s, and Truman moved on some issues. Randolph did a march on Washington in 1963, and you, know, you saw action and some progress with Kennedy and then into Johnson. And so what you get there is, in each of these cases, sometimes the march was proposed, the president responded, 
quickly enough and well enough that the decision was made not to do it at that point. Uh, other times you did it. But the fact is that you always maintain that ability to pressure and that ability to, to push. And if the, the president who's in office wants to work with you, as Kennedy, by the way, you know, invited the leaders of the March of Washington to the White House after the march, even though there's evidence that the Kennedy administration was very frightened about you know, what it, how it would play out and what would happen, um, then you, you take advantage of that, right? You do it. And remember, Lyndon Johnson, after the March on Washington, in, uh, or after the March on Washington, after uh, Kennedy's death, after Johnson came to power, Johnson would remain very responsive to the civil rights movement. And he had Randolph, King, and others, Barrett Ralston, in the White House talking about economic justice issues, connecting them to racial justice issues. Michael Harrington was, had influence with Sergeant Shriver and other people like that. And so you had a moment there where, yeah, it was, I think it was, you were getting to the point of the kind of stuff you're talking about, where you're sometimes inside, sometimes outside, putting really big things on the table, and then wham, you had Vietnam War. And right. uh, the final thing I'll say in this regard is that uh, why I always include militarism on that list of concerns is that you know the point where your coalitions break apart is often around war and peace issues. And so it is very, very vital to listen to people like Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan as they say, it is not just a good idea, it is necessary to cut that Pentagon budget and also to restructure our foreign policy. And one scary part is that's one thing that uh, Joe Biden did not subject to the joint task force process, right? I'm uh, very policy. scared by that. Yeah, 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 it was off the table. I do think, you know, it, there's a problem maybe in that the left is not an organized left in the United States. We don't have like the ballast of a large progressive labor movement that that's part of that that backs up the progressive party and say a European democracy. And so we may really be not command and control. We're going to push, but we're going to pull back. But one group putting outside pressure on the other group, getting the deal and supporting. It seems like there is no command center on the left right now. There is no even leader of the left. Bernie Sanders' influence will be significant, but it will get less and less as you get beyond 2020, in my opinion. And he doesn't speak for the entire progressive flank. Uh, and, and so I don't think he can bargain. He cannot, like a, like a minority party leader in a coalition government, bargain for who the Treasury Secretary is. That's what I'm getting at. And there's no one who can for the left. Well, I would hope that some people can. And I, I know I hear <laughs> what you're saying, um, but I do think there are, are folks who have rising power. And, and uh, we're seeing that, frankly, because of inside-outside politics. Uh, the squad, AOC, Ilhan Omar, mm -hmm. um, Ayanna Presley, and their new allies coming in, people like Cori Bush, they have a ability to mobilize mass movements, or at least to mobilize a lot of energy. That matters. That is important, and that can become a part of it. You have sort of some of the more uh, older left people on the left who you know, have been there and have influence. You have this young movement rising. I think that there has to be that respect and that openness to the people who are in the streets, who are um, you know, making demands. I put a lot of faith in the Sunrise Movement. I think there are people there who are uh, really good at, at you know, focusing an issue and focusing it. So uh, what is encouraging to me in this regard is the openness of someone like a Bernie Sanders, and I think also to some extent an Elizabeth Warren, to these movements and their willingness to respect them and to draw them in. To, if indeed uh, there is a, a coalescence there, and, and 
again, I want to emphasize a respect for the young rising movements and the people that are engaged with them and to the young members of Congress. Um, I do think there's some bargaining, some, some bargaining territory there, and also an element of unity that could come into play very quickly with this transition to power. The one thing to be careful about is to not be so happy, so excited to get rid of Trump that you forget about the, the absolute necessity of get rid in, getting rid of the, many of the structures that made Trump possible. And on that regard, I would very strongly emphasize that progressives have to be ready, not just for the fight going into November 3, but also for the fight coming out of November 3. And with this giant protection we've created, it's not just going away and it's not prostrate the way I, it was in the New Deal era where the Great Depression had wrecked it. Uh, yeah. But I think you're totally right to say this has to work or we have a much more malevolent Republican president, more successful than Trump and more effective politically in, in the next election. And so this really is either a new Democratic Party realignment or, or one strike you're out. And so the stakes are high, but we're out of time. Very thoughtful as always, John, and really pleasure for you to, to, to join us and join all our listeners across the state, uh, many of whom are great admirers of yours so, and your work. So thank you very much, John. It's an honor to be with you, and thanks so much for your good questions. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, as part of our special Democrat National uh, Convention uh, Week edition, where we are doing interviews on the state of the Democratic Party and its future. Uh, this will be our counter-programming to the Republican National Convention. Uh, we're here in our last interview, uh, last but definitely not least, uh, with George Gale, the executive director of People's Action, which is a national federation of groups like this National Wisconsin that we are a member of, a founding member of. And George is one of the savviest movement progressives in the country on how we can build the kind of powerful left that shares governing power. So thank you very much for joining us, George. Hey, glad to do this. Glad to have you. You're the perfect person to kind of back clean up here now that we've heard from Mayor Tom Barrett, uh, Jason Ray, uh, John Nichols, a favorite here in Wisconsin, but known nationally and known by you as well, and then uh, to have you comment on our overall theme. And our theme is this unexpected, in many ways, uh, movement of, of alliance between the moderate and democratic wings of the uh, progressive, the, the progressive and the moderate wings, or establishment wing, as the moderate wing is often called, of the Democratic Party. Because in the primary and in 2016, there was a sharp divide and you had to choose your lane. And Biden seemed to be entirely in the moderate wing, didn't even uh, contest for the progressive lane during the primary. And then around April, in early April, he started saying he wanted to be FDR to the shock of his own advisors. And so and we saw that reflected in the convention and in the joint task force reports that he and uh, Bernie Sanders' team uh, nailed down with very strong progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Pramila Jayapal leading negotiations in various issue areas. And then in the platform itself, for the most part, though in some cases, uh, some of the DNC reps watered down what Biden had agreed to, which is hilarious. So there's uh, people who aren't, don't, want, don't want to go as far as Biden, apparently, that were involved in the platform committee. But it's still a very strong 
progressive platform. And Bernie Sanders continues to say that this will be the most progressive president since FDR if he follow, if Biden follows through on his current commitments. So I want to get your sense of this unusual, do you think, what's happened so far? I know there's usually an attempt to unify the party during the general election, but this seems like more than that. I think it makes so much sense that this is where we're at, even if not all of us like it or excited about it. If you go back to even think about where we were at politically and where kind of progressives were at following the financial crisis, like so much has shifted since then. So one, you have vibrant social movements in a way that that far outpaced anything that was happening kind of before the financial crisis and before President Obama was elected. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, Occupy, the Dreamers Movement, Me Too, um, you know, in the Sanders campaign and so much more. Those things were not in motion in the way they are and weren't setting the context that governing was happening in. And then you've had this big shift within the kind of larger organizing sector towards movement politics and people building the capacity to play in elections at a more real level and to really galvanize around what people really want, less of a lesser of two evil politics, but more of a politics of people's true aspirations. And so we're in a long arc of shifting what's possible and shifting the mindset of the Democratic Party and who has power and who are the key players and what the platform is. And uh, for those that are very unsatisfied with where we are, I think if you really look, if you would have told me we would have had a serious two serious progressives really compete for the presidency, for the nomination, you know, in 2020. If you would have told me the progressive caucus in Congress would be way more progressive than it was, if you would have told me, you know, Democrats would have been primaried up and down the ballot and so many cases successful, you know, around the moment of Occupy, I would have been like, that is amazing that we're going to pull that off in the next 11 years. So I think we are like partway through that project. And you can either say, hey, we didn't get what we wanted. I'm going to take my toys and go home. Or you can say, no, I'm going to get into the complexity of governing and engaging. And right now you have still the establishment wing of the Democratic Party has an incredible amount of power um, and, and also does have a base within the party. And you have a vibrant progressive movement. And this is where we are. And we have to figure out how to come together if we want to get anything done for people. Um, so I think it makes a ton of sense that we're here. And I, what you described as where we are is exactly where we are. I couldn't agree with you more that this is night and day from 10 years ago. And though it's not, we weren't able, we progressives, to take over the party this time. Uh, though really, for a while there, it looked like Bernie was going to run the table. It was sort of miraculous, like a Hail Mary at the end of a football game uh, mm -hmm. where Biden pulled this out and the establishment pulled this out. Uh, but, you know, best I can tell, you look at the Progressive Caucus and also election results up and down the ballot, what happened in Kentucky, what happened in St. Louis. Uh, we mm -hmm. continue to have progressive insurgent candidates, and that is threatening the establishment. They know there's an opinion they have to respond to. So this isn't just about them, you know, their decision to do the right thing. This is about power and the power that progressives have built on the ground and in elections. But it wasn't enough to win, take over. Bernie seemed to be capped around a third of the vote in the primaries uh, once Biden was the sole opponent, unfortunately. And if you look at long-term opinion polling, the progressive wing of the party is a, a slightly less than a majority. It's about 45, 46 percent. So we're getting there, but we're not quite there. 
but we have so much power we have they have to they have to work with us in order to govern and so that's our leverage and we can the extent we can co-govern smartly and mobilize it seems like we can really do something but i want to see if you're concerned it seems to me that what they've done is hard for them that biden has gone and 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 agreed to a lot more structural reform which he sees as being like uh, franklin Delano roosevelt and the new deal and there is a uh, a comparison both to the man and to the approach and to the crisis we're facing but it gets even harder once we get i think to, to the to the next big important thing, other than winning this election and getting a landslide and getting the Senate and getting Mitch McConnell out of the way of reform, those are huge. But then the next big thing is, if you have administrations that are staffed, that the personnel is like the Clinton and the Obama administrations, then we have no hope. Those people are against us. They're from this revolving door, huge campaign, lobbying, communications, industrial complex. And they won't do it even if uh, Biden tells them to. And so but there'll be huge opposition from all of that power, all that vested interest in any very progressive appointments. Like, can you imagine if they if he actually tried to appoint Elizabeth Warren as Treasury secretary? So it seems like that's the big fight. I want to see if you agree before we get to actual governing who is in government beneath the president. I think that's exactly right. It's going to come down to personnel. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid to say I think the platform will be meaningless if the wrong personnel is chosen. And you're even seeing that now in the campaign where you have the wrong personnel in terms of campaign staff who will throw out, you know, really bad ideas around either austerity or around race, around um, around drug testing and other things that you'll just be like, oh, my God, this is horrible. So I think the fight around personnel is the one we have to be gearing up for. I think, like you, the, the personnel is going to be mixed. There'll be some places where we, we'll, we, we should prepare to be wildly disappointed. And if we really organize and play our cards right, there are places where we might be quite happy. And those are the, those are the spots and the issue areas where we're going to really be able to propel real change. So I think that is, that is going to be the fight. We got to gear up for it. And I mean, you, you know, you're a historian, like go back to the New Deal. I mean, some of the most exciting stuff could be tracked back to personnel like Francis Perkins, who showed incredible leadership and brought all kinds of ideas. And that's where some of the most game-changing uh, stuff happened. Yeah, uh, Francis Perkins, Harry Hopkins, the, the two main architects, uh, Harold Ickes, the, the senior, who was a Republican progressive. Uh, but he, interestingly enough, though, FDR had a mix. He had conservatives and moderates of both parties, but he had key dominant progressives close to him coming up with policy proposals, Francis Perkins and Harry Hopkins leading the group. And that's what's going to be critical, because if you look at like Robert Reich's memoir or being in the Clinton administration, he is so outgunned, it's hopeless. He's surrounded by Lloyd Benson and and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Rubin and and uh, and Alan Greenspan and all of these sorts of people. He just has no hope of winning, and he's also not as savvy. That's the other thing. We need progressives who can function well politically, either connect to the power of the external movement or be able to navigate the insider, both, or they'll be outgunned, it seems to me. Would you agree? It's, but they have to have the confidence of Biden. So I think there's a dilemma that we can't literally tell him you have to have this person because Biden has to be comfortable with them or they will not be effective. I think that's true. I think you're right. He's going to have to trust them. And he's shown he's somebody that seeks loyalty. And so I think we have a lot of catch up to do in terms of 
kind of introducing the Biden campaign and then the hopeful transition team to leadership that would actually help uh, propel our agenda that he would get comfortable with. But we're seeing that happen. I mean, the depth of the relationship that he's built with Elizabeth Warren over the last few months, I think, speaks to something quite promising. I mean, I don't see Bernie Sanders seeking a cabinet position, but the depth of relationship that's been built there over the last few months seems like authentic and significant. So I think there is a willingness. But, you know, as you know, it's all going to come down to organizing. So we have to, like, focus on winning the election, but we can't just be We have to both play an inside and an outside game and making sure we have the right personnel at the table. So, George, I could not agree with you more on this personnel fight, though it's hard. Uh, one thing that concerns me, because you're in the same business I am by business, I don't mean corporate business, <laughs> I mean our careers, and that is movement building. The coalition part of the left is quite limited. It seems like the left is a not an, we don't have an organized left in the United States, and we certainly don't have the ballast of a very progressive, very large labor movement that is both horizontally and vertically integrated, like you have in European countries that are the basis for labor and very left parties uh, in, in, in parliamentary systems in Europe. And so it's a little unclear to me who even bargains with the establishment mm -hmm. and with Biden over the personnel. You have just a lot of people that will put themselves forward who have no base, and some of the people with the most base uh, not even being known because they're not big self-promoters. And, you know, you function in this in this terrain. It, there's a little bit of a Lord of the Flies element of, of the professional left, I think. But let me know. I think that's a challenge. Uh, how do we actually take the power we have and leverage it in some unified way? Yeah, I think that's the right question. I think that compared to 10 years ago, I would say different left formations are coming together, ones that have both real power on the ground and have power in terms of kind of brand and name recognition are coming together more and more each year. I think we see that and able to operate at a level of both trying to push things further to the left, but also very clear on the need to win in the now. And so, so I actually feel more hopeful about that. But yeah, there's not like, there's not one phone number you're going to call to, to figure out who to negotiate with, but I think we're trending in the right direction. I think the political sophistication of left movements in the country is growing each cycle. So I think if you even just look at the movement for black lives is operating at a whole different level than Occupy did or any of the other movements of the last 15 years. So I'm actually quite hopeful about this. And I think of this, we're in, I would say like we're 15 years in a 30 year arc of the progressive movement moving from, I would say, you know, fledgling, a little bit infantile in some ways to uh, much more robust, bold and sophisticated. And I, I just think we're we're just partway through that project. But I see improvement every year. Well, I I'm reassured by you saying that because I rely on your uh, not, not only your knowledge, but your 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 powers of observation as a first-tier organizer because you interact with all these folks and then you've been doing this for a while so that that just what you said there makes me more hopeful i mean i you can talk me down from this i tend to focus probably too much on how much of the money on the left goes to people with no base that that mm -hmm. have you know brand names sitting in dc with a bunch of staff 
or the amount of fundraising that goes on for some sort of entrepreneurial thing someone put out to try to claim that they're at the front of an issue when they're not the ones doing the organizing, they're not the people with roots in communities. It does seem like there's a lot of wasted money and wasted efforts on the left, and that a lot of institutional funders, uh, the well-intentioned smart ones, there are a lot of them, you know that, um, they have trouble discerning the fact from the fiction, the, uh, the, 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 the promotion and the, uh, and the spin from the real in-depth multiracial organizing and the ones that have roots in real communities and real constituencies in the African-American community, in the Latinx community, uh, et cetera. Um, but you can talk me down. It seems like we could be so much more effective if we were better aligned. I feel like the biggest money problem we have in terms of, well, there, there are two, I'd say one, the fact that we're as dependent as we are on philanthropy and donors, uh, you know, kind of, you know, large scale donors as we are, that's a problem. Like there's only so much power you're going to be able to build if that's the main source of funds. So how do you figure out how to fund organizing power building and movements through everyday people and other models, which obviously the co-op model at Citizen Action Wisconsin is one example of that. It's also very hard. But and I think the other biggest challenge is the, the amount of money spent on very transactional electoral politics that actually has there's very little evidence to show that it really works, whether that's, you know, kind of the, the form of canvassing that we would we think of as verbal leafleting, um, just the amount of money spent on paid ads that maybe I don't even there's no evidence they even help you get to 50 plus one. But we know they don't help in the project of helping shift worldview over time. I think of these as like this. There is an incredible amount of money moving there, the amount of money that's moved just to digital because donors can get their head wrapped around digital because the metrics are more clear. So I feel like it's the political realm of money where you were talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being misspent every cycle. Um, that's where I think the big game is. And so I think it's on organizations like Citizen Action Wisconsin and People's Action to, to get in there and disrupt that. And I think this work we've been doing around deep canvassing, which moves you out of very transactional stuff to so much more transformative conversations with people and is evidence-based and works, the more we can demonstrate that we can do that, we can disrupt this total misspending of money that's happening in the political arena. I think you make a great point that I'm too focused maybe on some brand names that have, you know, uh, 50 staff sitting in D.C. that have no power, right? But the big money is these uh, kind of super PAC independent expenditure groups that are hitting all of your digital ads constantly. They're swamped in Wisconsin if you're a Wisconsin voter. And these are just shops set up by political consultants and the like, and they're, they're, they're bringing in hundreds of millions. So that's, oh, that, yeah. that political money is the stuff that's being, I won't name the names, but you and I both know the names, but our audience can know the name because any, they can't go anywhere on the internet without being hit up by <laughs> these people with a digital ad if you're in Wisconsin. Not in Illinois, though, right? That's not a battleground state. Nope. So you're saying it's those kind of groups, right, to, uh, to, who will remain nameless but are very well known. That's that's, I think, where the big problems are. Yep. And it's this entrepreneurial consultant culture, which is also behind the moderate wing. I just think we live in a communication age, which not like it was nothing in the 1930s or the progressive era is nothing like it. Uh, the PR, advertising, 
the communication lobbying book of the Sultan complex that's funded by the plutocracy, by the concentration of wealth, right? So it's more powerful. It influences government policy very effectively, and average people, even in mass, do not. And taking that on, here's the problem, right? If Biden's in earnest, what do we have to do to back him up? Let's say he uh, actually uh, appoints a fairly balanced administration in the direction of FDR, who he says is his model. Uh, but aren't we going to have to mobilize to a large scale uh, in order to make it worth his while in the bargain, assuming he's in goodwill and we get that far with a balanced administration? He's fighting for strong policies. And that also means we need to tell the difference, George, I think, between things that are stepping stones, because he's not just going to do Medicare for all or the Green New Deal is written, to those things and which things are sellouts and not to get caught mm -hmm. up on a doctrinaire position that – because almost no major reform in American history, none I can think of, was done in one piece of legislation. That's right. I, I'm so glad you raised that. I think – one of the great, you know, I'm an organizer, and one of the great developments in, in organizing over the last 15 years, I would say, is a much sharper focus on those North Star transformational policy changes. Like, we're so much more clear on that in each policy area, whether that's free college, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. What we're less clear on is what are the stepping stone reforms that are significant, they're game-changing, they both improve people's lives now, and they rebalance power, taking power away from the opposition and moving it to everyday people, what are the ones that can get us there? And we're, we're going to have to figure those out, get clear on what they are. We can move some in a Biden administration, and we have to be clear how they set up the next fight. And I think we are still a work in progress on being clear on what they are and also understanding that is how we win. That is how we win, because I think, unfortunately, I think the theory has been there'll be a political revolution and we'll just usher in all this stuff and it'll be amazing. And like I just yeah. read these truths by Joe Lepore and I saw no evidence of that being a part of how things go down in this country. Never in, in American history. And I look healthcare, that task joint task report has gotten a lot of shade. But Pramila Jayapal got some major stepping stones. I mean, all the plans will be gold plans, so a huge increase in the value of the plan, and then making an all-public public option that is available to everyone, including people who, who, who uh, have insurance at work and to employers, and reducing the Medicare age to 60. That seems like you can argue it's not big enough stepping stone. That certainly seems like a stepping stone to Medicare for all for me. Uh, but it, uh, it's getting a lot of kind of a, it's being assailed on the left right now in some quarters of the left anyway. Well, and the question I would ask, is it being assailed by the professional left or is it being assailed by the working class left who's actually out there not getting paid to be a professional organizer, professional activist? Like the question I always ask myself is, yeah. would the people in this low income community or working class community we work in, would they take the deal? Right. That right. Should, the people who are most impacted by the issues should be the guidepost for what's winning and what's not, not a bunch I think of professional staff. I think that's the right question. And I think it's partly these doctrinaire folks who think the Canadian healthcare system is the only system in the world that would work. But uh, they're probably, I need to pay more attention, are some actually directly affected working class folks. And those folks should be taken very, very seriously. But I get frustrated with 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 kind of privileged white progressives just have a doctrine and they won't give up on the absolute version of it. That, there's a difference between the two. I think you're totally right. Yeah. 
So we are out of time. You did, George, exactly what I hoped you would do. I think you tied up this whole conversation and provided a lot of depth and insight and analysis of how much we, how far we've come on the left, but how far we need to go. We need to evolve quickly. Biden yeah. seems to have evolved, but we need to evolve really quickly to be a partner. And we, and by the way, it just seems to me that the power we're talking about building, if Biden doesn't follow through, is what we need to do to primary him in 2024 and become the opposition, mm-hmm. because we'll need to build the same capacity either way. Yep. So thank you for joining us, George, on short notice. And I think you really added something for our audience. So great hey. to talk to you as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to our special convention edition of Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be back with our regular panel next week. Until then, thank you for listening to Battleground Wisconsin.